Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. What you're asking can't be done. This is a futile effort. If it could be done, it shouldn't be done. But it can't be done. It can't be done, obviously. Each episode this season, we're going to tell you the story of something they said could never be done. And this week, we're talking about an idea thought to be inconceivable, male contraception. See what I did there? We all saw it. (laughs) Actually, no one saw it. I saw it. Everyone else heard it. Uh, Yeah. And what we mean by male contraceptive is something akin to the female contraceptive pill. It's simple, it's reliable, and it is reversible. There hasn't been a new form of male contraception on the market since since when? The middle of the 19th century when they started doing vasectomies. And now women have all kinds of reversible contraceptive options. Not all of them are amazing, but there's nothing for men. And that's sort of a mystery. Why is that? Yeah. And so to get first an idea of how people feel about this subject, we went out on the streets of New York City and accosted random people and asked them what they thought about a male birth control pill. If there was a male pill, would you uh, ask your male partner to use it? Absolutely. I would love for him to use it. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the same thing, just the other way around. (laughs) The flip side of that is, I guess, would you trust men if there was like a pill that you had to take regularly? No, that's the problem, too. Um, I guess it depends on who you're with. I mean, why would they trust men at all? (laughs) What if you don't trust women to take that pill? If there were a male pill, would you take it? Yes. I have no desire to have a kid, and if I had control over that, I would. I don't see why not, yeah. As long as it's um, safe and you know, test it and everything. They make sure it's, it's, it's long, no long-term effects for you, then yeah, why not? Do you think that men understand the hassle of female contraception? No. And, like, dealing with the pill? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Talked about that with my husband as well and told him about it and he had no idea. Absolutely not. They have no idea. <laughs> So that wasn't awkward at all, talking to people about their contraceptive choices on the street (laughs) during their lunch breaks. Yeah, we were pretty much shot down relentlessly, uh, but generally the people who we managed to talk to were pretty into the idea. Uh, Someone else who is also into it, she's a friend of the show. Anne Friedman, who's a journalist who writes for New York Magazine, and she also co-hosts the podcast Call Your Girlfriend, actually planted the the seed for this episode uh, when she emailed us with a question. Yeah, she wrote in the show and asked, I want to know why there isn't a male contraceptive pill. And the reason she asked this question is because... Pretty much any time you are in a gathering of more than three women who sleep with men, like at some point someone's complaining about her birth control situation or saying, here is this new thing that I'm doing. Like, there are a lot of people for whom like the contraceptive pill or like the ring or other things that are hormone-based are fine. There are other people for whom they cause major depression or how many friends do I have who are like, I found myself crying at This American Life again and I realized it's because <laughs> it's because of the pill. Or, you know, it really saps your sex drive. You know, and then there are also some very real medical risks where they say, don't smoke and be on the pill at the same time because blood clots. You know, these are just questions that men don't have to ask. And they're questions that women ask themselves and talk about with each other frequently. Are these uh, questions we we want to have to ask ourselves, Tim? Well, uh, maybe they're questions we should ask ourselves just Mm. in the basic interest of equity, sharing this reproductive responsibility that sort of affects everyone, even if it affects women more directly. And you know what? We also want to talk about this because literally people have said it could not be done. Carl Jurassi, he's the father of the female birth control pill, predicted that we would not have a male pill by the year 2000. So what we will get today is the why we don't have it, the science, the business behind it. But before that, more from Anne. 
And when did it first occur to you that this system is one-sided? It was very apparent to me from the very beginning that this was a burden that was mine to bear. I think none of us have lived in a world where there is an option for men to sort of have an equal stake in contraception. But, you know, it's certainly true that the more I learned about how limited the options for contraception are for women that I started asking questions about, hey, why aren't we looking at the opposite side of this? It would seem like there's a lot of other space for innovation here. So why do you think there is no reliable, reversible male contraception? Now, knowing what I know about the development of the female birth control pill, I feel like that was such a special, perfect storm that was initiated for political reasons. So to understand this perfect storm that led to the creation of the female birth control pill, uh, Anne told us about this book called The Pill, of course, by Jonathan Eig. And the story goes like this. Margaret Sanger, who founded what would become Planned Parenthood, decided or realized really that women needed something better than just condoms or diaphragms to control their bodies and their reproduction. Something that women's partners won't know they're even doing to prevent pregnancy. So Sanger goes out and finds herself a wealthy heiress to fund her, and then she hires a couple of scientists. One was a scientist who had been kicked out of Harvard back in the 30s for growing rabbits in test tubes. And uh, Classic mistake. And the other guy was a doctor who had been treating infertility. That doctor, who was ironically a Catholic, named John Rock, realized that the same hormones he was giving women to treat infertility could be administered differently and that that would actually stop ovulation and therefore would prevent pregnancy. Once they found this hormone, they actually had to go to Puerto Rico in order to do the human test trials to make sure it was safe and effective. Yeah, why did they go to the Puerto Rico? Well, this is a bit of an issue. Basically, they couldn't find people in the U.S. who were willing to take the drug, so they had to go to a place where there were poor women who either didn't understand or were willing to take the risk in order to test it. Um, and luckily for them and for everyone else, it worked. They did find a few willing volunteers, and those, it worked. And so those women started telling their friends, hey, this pill really prevents pregnancy. And only then did they kind of have a true testing group. I think Margaret Sanger was first like, I want a pill to prevent pregnancy in like 1914. And we didn't get the pill till the mid-60s. Wow. That story is, is, I think, instructive because it happened under the radar. It was, it was privately funded. It did not have a goal of making a lot of money on the open market. It was just sort of like, this is a thing that we believe women should have access to. And, you know, and today, I really think that the only way we're going to get a male pill is in some ways with a similar effort. You know, someone with an activist agenda working with private researchers and probably private money without too much of like a market focused (laughs) plan for the pill to just say, like, this is a thing that the world needs. And you know what? Right now, there actually are people working to make male contraception happen. And we went out and found them. David Sokol is the chair of the Male Contraception Initiative. So, David, you're a longtime advocate of a new option for male contraception. Uh, You've been a physician for 40 years. Are you surprised that there is nothing on the market? Yeah, I'm surprised. Although Carl Gerasi wrote a book in 1979 predicting that there would be no male contraceptive in 2000. Wow. He won that bet. (laughs) We've, we've gone beyond that, and there's still not much likely to be 
online in the near future. Why do we need another new product for men? Why basically have you founded this organization to promote this idea? Well, men do not have a reliable, reversible method. Condoms in typical use have a failure rate of about one out of six per year. So it's like a roll of the dice. Uh, Women have injectables, IUDs. They have a whole host of reliable, reversible methods. Men have zilch. So men need a pill or an implant or something that will give them some better options. Is there some sort of technical challenge involved in male contraception? For women, a small, minuscule doses of hormones will convince the ovary that the woman is pregnant, or in at least in early pregnancy, and the ovary will shut down. So the female system has an on-off switch, several on-off switches that hormones can trigger. But sperm production never naturally shuts down, so you have to use very large doses of hormones to shut down the testes, sperm production, and those cause side effects. I mean, is there any potential here? We're focusing on um, sort of novel, innovative, non-hormonal approaches. Jurassic, hmm. in his 1979 book, mentioned that we, at the time, there's very little knowledge about how the epididymis works and the basic science of sperm maturation. And a lot of that basic science has been worked out now. So David broke down the cutting-edge technology of male contraception research into three sort of possibilities. Um, the first one is this this thing called vasogel. Vasogel is a good example. It's, it would be a method of reversible vasectomy. So the way this one works is a, a polymer is injected into the vas deferens. It's one of the tubes down there. And it solidifies to block the sperm. Now, I can see that becoming problematic at the uh, decisive moment, let's say. You can still have a moment... It only filters out the sperm. Like, everything else can go through. The liquid can go through. It's just the little guys can't go through. But how could this be reversible? The gel could be dissolved by a second injection. So it's kind of like Drano. Yeah, it's... Dr- I'm censoring myself right now. All right. Well, we'll get to the uh, concerns about marketing this later. What are some of our other options? Um, okay, there's also research in UNC Chapel Hill where they're looking at Epin antagonists. That keeps the sperm from swimming. So it turns out that the sperm don't just automatically start swimming when they get in the pool. They kind of <laughs> need a little signal. Take your mark. This technique turns off that signal. But wait, Tim, there's more. more. Researchers in Japan found more ways to hobble our little friends. They caused the sperm to mature with deformed tails. So they could move their tails a little bit, but they couldn't swim properly. So it's sort of limping sperm. We got your limping sperm. You got your lazy sperm. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. I got carried away. So those are the three most promising areas, apparently, of research in academia, but obviously they're not out in the market yet. You know, they say the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The next best time is today. And obviously folks like David Sokol are planting, but Big Pharma is not fertilizing. So it seems like there should be a market for male contraceptives and the money to make that happen, but there isn't. Yeah, no major pharmaceutical company is currently working on new forms of male contraception. Why not? 
That is the, I was going to say million dollar question. That is the $50 billion question, maybe. Emily Dorman, she's a healthcare consultant and on the board of the Male Contraception Initiative. She published a research paper about the developments and challenges in male contraception research. And it turns out that pharma has flirted with the idea before. Pharma was interested. Pharma, um, several major pharmaceutical companies had active R&D programs for male contraception up until around 2005, 2008. And then all of them exited uh, roughly around the same time. Now, can you sort of walk us through how they would approach that decision? Like what kind of factors they would consider? One consideration is that contraceptives are especially costly and time-consuming to develop, perhaps more so than drugs and agents for other types of conditions. Another consideration is that there are so many female-controlled options on the market, uh, and those have been on the market for some time, which means issues with efficacy and with tolerability, side effects, those sorts of things. They've had many years, even decades, to perfect. So any new option for a man coming in at this time, there'd be a very high bar for what is... um, what's an acceptable uh, side effect profile or efficacy profile. Hmm. And there wouldn't be such a tolerance for sort of figuring those things out once the products got to market. Why do you say that contraceptives are so technically challenging? Is there something about the biochemistry that makes it a hard nut to crack? It can take a perfectly fertile couple an entire year of well-timed sex to become pregnant. So to run a clinical trial that can prove a contraceptive method is effective, it takes a very long time to show that that's really preventing something there. Yeah, it's not Um, like, oh, here, it's a week later, your cholesterol's down, end of experiment. Exactly. And another consideration specifically just on the male contraceptive front, it is more challenging to contracept a man versus a woman who produces just one egg you know, per month. So you need to prevent one egg from getting to fertilization stage versus preventing millions of sperm. It's sort of like trying to hunt down one elephant versus 10,000 infesting shrews in a barn. <laughs> yep, that's about right. <laughs> infesting shrews. Oh my God, that's a very good metaphor. So I just get the feeling that the marketability of this has got to be a little fraught simply because when we start fiddling around down there, it's probably pretty easy for guys to take it as an attack on their virility, on their masculinity, even though we're talking about contraception. It's a sensitive area. So are there enough guys per your research who would be willing to buy male contraception? I think there are enough. There are a lot of surveys that have been done on acceptability of both men and women. You know, women, would you trust men? Would you be interested in men taking on that that burden of contraception? And for men, you know, would you be interested in taking on that burden? Would you be interested in being the one using contraception? The responses to surveys of that nature are overwhelmingly positive. Emily also thinks that men have a financial interest in a male contraceptive as well, and she came up with a thought experiment to explain why. Yeah, she calculated the economic value of a really effective contraceptive that worked 99% of the time compared to condoms, which are only 93% reliable. And they did this based on the cost of child support after an accidental pregnancy. So comparing condoms to this hypothetical male pill. It would be worth a man's while to pay up to about $11.80 per day, then running the risk of 18 years of child care payments. Where do you see uh, the development roadmap going? And is this something that will exist in our lifetimes? 
On the science side, this could absolutely be a reality. The roadblock is really the investment piece. Big Pharma is no longer in this game. The current investment is all on the nonprofit and academic side. One thing that we're currently conducting is some consumer research to try to understand what men would be looking for, what formulation, what uh, side effects would they be willing to tolerate, what efficacy profile would they see as you know a, a major improvement in what's already available. These are the pieces that potentially could entice more investment if there really was better evidence of a demand and of real interest in a particular formulation or type of contraceptive. Emily Dorman, she is on the board of the Male Contraception Initiative and also a consultant to the pharmaceutical industry. You know... I think there's an interesting historical arc that we can trace here. So the reason why I think the female pill was the first to develop is because originally females have to bear the burden of pregnancy. I mean, they have to carry the thing around for nine months. And so it sort of makes sense that they would be the first to find a solution to that, to that burden. And guys, conversely, can just be like, peace out. I am a male in the 50s. I don't care about the women's burdens. So now I feel there is two things going on. One, there does exist a male burden now. There's child support. There's legal lawsuits. Paternity testing. Paternity testing. Totally. So I feel like the environment has changed the balance of burden. So what I think is really cool about this story is it's also a story of changing cultural norms. Now that people in partnerships, whether they're marriages or just some kind of monogamy, are expected to be equal partners and share in the various tasks of daily life, it seems like contraception and making reproductive decisions should be shared as well. And that was kind of an undercurrent with a lot of the people we talked to on the street and in the studio. My dream world, it would be a parallel to a lot of tough questions that couples figure out together. It's like, um, are we going to move together to this like other city because you found work there? Are we going to together invest in a house or like have kids or who's supporting whose parents? All these like big questions that you ask. In my mind, who is taking contraception so that we don't have babies when we don't want them is a I would like to see that sort of on the table among the many things that you negotiate in a co-equal partnership. I think there's been an arc of change legally, culturally, and behind it all, we also have all the scientific advances that we talked about. Well, yes and no. Maybe there's been an arc of change, but we still don't have a pill on the market and no one's making one. Well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we've had an arc of change. Carl has been right since 1972. Yeah. I think those changes are laying the groundwork for movement in the future. I feel like we're slowly getting to a point where it's going to become a possibility. Maybe our podcast episode is going to ignite an investment race to be the first people to launch this product. And then we'll... Speak out, readers. Yes. Listeners. Rise up. Start a... (laughs) We're going to start... Start a revolution. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is this is it for this season of Actuality, but we'll be back. So subscribe and follow us on Twitter at ActualityPod, and uh, we'll see you when we come back. Thanks to Ann Friedman for sending in this idea. Oh, yeah. We got in the middle of a pitch meeting and it was like manna from heaven. It was perfect. Um, thanks to our producer, Claire Tennisgetter, and the entity known as Levi Sharp. 
as well as Deidre Dupke and Satara Nevis. And thanks to Jay Gorski, who made our excellent theme song and is our engineer as well. Also, I would like to thank uh, my parents for not using any kind of contraception to bring me into the world. Or unless maybe they did and I was an accident. Sorry! (laughs) 